Hello and thank you for joining our web series presentation sponsored by Robard Corporation. Today, Dr. Richard Lindquist will be talking about meal replacement strategies in a comprehensive weight management program. Dr. Lindquist is a board-certified obesity medicine specialist residing in Seattle, Washington. He is the Director of Medical Weight Management at Swedish Health Services Bariatric, Metabolic, and Endocrine Center, as well as consultant to Providence, St. Joseph Health System, and the obesity medicine industry. A full-time practitioner for over 15 years, he believes that improving access to care for patients is a major focus and having quality information, training, and resources is key for practitioners. We're very happy to have him with us uh, today, so without further delay, please welcome Dr. Richard Lindquist. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, before I roll into the portion uh, of the presentation around uh, meal replacement use, I'd really like to call out three prior presentations uh, that have been done that are available through Robard as well. Joan Kemmerman, uh, about two years ago, I think, did a very excellent talk on meal replacement and really went into a lot of the physiology around protein and fat metabolism. Dr. Shadel uh, is a bariatric surgeon who did a nice presentation on the use of meal replacements in a bariatric program and also did some nice, uh, had some nice comments around advocacy and why it's so important to help our patients succeed. And then last, Dr. Carolina Povian, uh, not long ago, I think about six or eight months ago, did a really nice presentation on the protein sparing modified fast and how that is similar and different to some of the other uh, dietary approaches. Today's approach, uh, objectives are, uh, number one, to explore the history of meal replacements and their rationale for use. And then we're going to segue into the current literature that talks about how meal replacements are used, used in weight management and bariatric surgery. And then last, we're going to finish up with a few uh, examples of ways to utilize meal replacements in weight management strategies. And those will come from, actually, from my practice. Uh, at this point, I'd like to, to call out uh, the idea of a care continuum and where nutritional care of the patient falls in this whole spectrum. The care continuum uh, with the patient at the center allows us to utilize any of a number of types of tools and approach to have a truly comprehensive type of approach. And uh, nutrition clearly is, is important. Behavior modification, which more and more I think of as how adults learn and keeping patients engaged. Um, working a little bit with activity is important as well, obviously. And then medication management in a comprehensive program with uh, avoidance of weight-positive medications, encouragement of weight-negative medications, and use of anti-obesity medications where appropriate uh, as is important. And then uh, surgery and procedures. There are patients for whom bariatric surgery, metabolic surgery is going to be useful, and it's important to keep in mind that a comprehensive approach involves thinking about all the potential resources we can provide our patients. So, what are meal replacements? Well, definition is it's a prepackaged, formulated food that by itself can replace all or part of one or more daily meals, and it may be liquid or solid, for example, shakes and bars. And some are nutrient-fortified and others are not. Now, it's important to keep in mind, I think, that people routinely use meal replacements every day. Every time someone stops at a mini-mart or a vending machine or buys a 800-calorie coffee drink, that's basically a meal replacement. 
uh, it's just not necessarily a good composition meal replacement. So uh, the idea of meal replacements is, uh, can be expanded out to quite a large area. But we want to talk about nutritionally uh, composed meal replacements that help our patients meet and maintain their weight goals. So early examples. This is the this is the earliest example I could find. It's an example of pemmican, bar of pemmican. And I understand you can still buy it today. I've never tried it. Um, basically, it's a mix of 50-50 powdered meat and fat that's dried and packaged up. It's got a 10-year shelf-stable lifespan. Uh, it was uh, pre-European. Oops, sorry, my cursor's in the way. It was pre-European, but it was also used by European settlers as well into the 1900s. Fast forward into the more modern era, and we have 1959, the development of a product called MetriCount. And there might be some people on this podcast uh, uh, old enough to remember this, but basically it was a pretty chalky uh, thing that was touted as one of the first weight control drinks. The composition wasn't particularly interesting. Skim milk, soybean flour, corn oil, and vitamins. I don't see much in the way of, of uh, essential oils, and I certainly don't see much in the way of protein. But this was one of the earliest uh, approaches at consumer-oriented meal replacements. Moving into the modern era, I, I think it's fair to say that the focus on, on medically and uh, health-oriented meal replacements really started with George Blackburn and the group at Harvard who developed the protein-sparing modified fast in 1973. And it's called protein-sparing because it spares the muscle degradation uh, in the body, and it's a modified fast because it's not particularly high-calorie. Uh, it was developed in response to patients who just weren't eating. They were hospitalized, they were sick, they had trauma, and they were malnourished. And uh, in this context of uh, inadequate calories, which uh, were perhaps a lot of glucose, patients were losing their muscle and not burning fat. And uh, Blackburn and his group found that by going with higher protein that they could uh, avoid the insulin resistance that prevented fat utilization. And what they found was that in the setting of hospitalized patients, that high-protein uh, products would help patients maintain their lean mass and be able to mobilize their fat mass and burn them as ketones. So that was pretty, pretty dramatic. Uh, fast forward to the look-ahead study, 2001. I think a lot of people are, are familiar with this. This was brought by Thomas Wadden and his group of collaborators in Pennsylvania that looked at patients with type 2 diabetes, and they found 5,000 of them, and they broke them into two different groups. One group was typical diabetes treatment with some counseling. The second group was the uh, intervention group. It was an intensive lifestyle counseling program with structured weight loss treatment, including the use of meal replacements. And this is a because it didn't replace all the whole food. It's a partial meal replacement program. But they replaced two meals and a snack. And what they found, and not on this slide, but uh, what they found immediately in the first year was that the patients on the structured program lost considerably more weight than the control group. And at eight years, as represented on this slide, that effect seemed to be durable, that at eight years, 50% of the folks that they talked with had lost and maintained 5% of their weight compared to 37% of the typical diabetes treatment plan. And 27% had lost 10% of their body weight versus 17%. So this speaks to really 
two things for me. Number one is that the use of structured uh, meal program with meal replacements is effective and it's more effective than the alternative. Um, it also points out to me that when you have patients who are adherent with a diabetes program and getting some counseling and working on managing their diabetes, they too can achieve some weight loss. So this speaks to the value of the uh, counseling and intervention piece and the adherence from both groups. So in our current era, the current state of the new replacement world, I guess, is that we have a very wide range of products available to us. They're widely accepted for weight loss and as a supplement to typical diet, either as part of an intensive uh, weight loss program or as just a healthier alternative to what people might otherwise be eating through their day. Uh, it continues to have utility in treating calorie protein wasting that uh, protein and other nutritional supplements continue to be valuable in illness. Um, and what's emerged, I think, in the last, I'm going to say, five to seven years is even more of a focus on remission of type 2 diabetes and uh, the use of a structured diet and meal replacements in uh, pushing diabetes into remission. Also, as bariatric surgery has continued to become more well-known and more uh, widespread, the use of meal replacements has a very strong role in that uh, surgical care. Uh, and to support all of these roles, there are a lot of different compositions available right now. So in the world of meal replacements, you have high-protein versions, you have high-fat versions, high-carb versions. Some are vitamin and mineral fortified, others are not. But there's a very wide range available. And in fact, there are meal replacements that are marketed to meet these various nutritional lifestyles. And uh, when I went through my uh, search here, I found meal replacements that were essentially uh, if you if you Google meal replacements and you put any of these words in, you will find meal replacements that are structured to have uh, application in all of these. So uh, and then I so I was to here fill in the blank because clearly uh, there are many more uh, options out there than than what I put in. Just as there are a lot of different nutritional lifestyles, there are a lot of different compositions of various dietary types. So this is a slide that you see a lot in, in uh, looking at dietary profiles. This is from D'Souza, 2008, that shows the nutritional composition of diets changes uh, or varies widely. On the left, you have Ornish, which has 7% fat. On the right, you have Atkins, which has 62% fat. On the left, you have uh, Ornish, which has 75% carbohydrate. And on the right, again, is Atkins at the low end of carbs with 9%. And you can see protein varies slightly, but generally speaking, the lower the carb, the uh, higher the protein. So if you look at dietary macronutrient composition, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, how, much is, uh, how much is enough and how much is too much? And uh, I sort of did a shorthand thing here. I, I didn't put references in, but uh, in order to get a little bit of information out, I, I summarized uh, how much carbohydrates, well, not too much. I think that uh, on the low end of the carb spectrum, you're down to 30 grams. On the higher end, in a reduced carb approach, you know, 120 grams is probably the highest amount that can be considered to be a reduced carbohydrate approach. And again, the, the key in, I think, modern weight management while it's true that you can lose weight on any diet, and I firmly believe that, 
I think there's a metabolic edge to the reduced carbohydrate approaches. And the whole idea there is, is in keeping insulin levels uh, low to avoid that insulin effect on fat storage and inhibition of fat burning. Uh, insulin is the queen mother of all hormones, and it will stimulate fat storage and inhibit fat burning as soon as you start to get significant amounts of uh, uh, that carbohydrate and insulin response. So how much fat? Well, you want enough. We know that omega-3s and omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids are essential. And we know that if you get 20 to 30 grams per day of fat or oils, it promotes gallbladder insulin. So that's sort of the floor for fat. And as you can see from the previous slide, there's a wide range of fat content. And uh, even at reduced carbohydrate approaches, the fat content will vary. Um, I do want to take a couple minutes to tease out protein because I think that protein is uh, important to understand because it's one of the major macronutrients that we really want to focus on getting enough of during any type of a weight management or maintenance strategy. Uh, this slide is from Don Lehman, who's uh, one of my mentors I consider to be the kind of the king of protein. And this is uh, uh, with permission from him that shows uh, the Institute of Medicine protein guidelines has a very wide range between the uh, what the lower acceptable intake is and the upper uh, acceptable intake, and talks about where the RDA is, which you'll note is at the low end of the acceptable intake, um, with uh, 0 0.8 being the low end and 2.5 being the high end. So there's a very wide range of protein that's quite acceptable in a lot of, of um, different types of approaches. Uh, also, you can get protein from a lot of different sources. We've got whey protein from dairy, and we've got casein from dairy. That's the curds part of the curds and whey. Um, we have soy protein, egg protein. Uh, collagen, I put in parentheses because there's what I'll call good quality collagen, uh, and then there's not so good quality collagen. Our bodies are composed of a lot of collagen, and it's kind of what keeps us hung together and, and uh, standing upright. Otherwise, we kind of look like that cartoon of a boneless chicken, I think. But, uh, you know, collagen is, uh, good quality collagen has, uh, does come from connective tissue, but it's uh, quite digestible and it's good quality. There was a problem with collagen-based products back in the 70s where low quality collagen from cows, from the hooves and from the horns was used, and it actually resulted in uh, protein calorie malnutrition and heart uh, problems, and there were 60 deaths related to these inadequate collagen protein-based supplements back in the 70s. Um, we don't use those today. I don't know of any company that that, uh, that continues that practice. Uh, so the protein, uh, collagen, beef, pork-based products are all, I think, quite, uh, quite good. So there are different types of proteins, but not all proteins are necessarily created equal. The uh, major driver for muscle maintenance in adults is the amount and quality of good quality protein, and it seems to be leucine dependent. Leucine is one of the amino of the uh, branch chain amino acids, and proteins differ on how much amino acids they have in them. There actually is a leucine threshold that you have to get a certain amount of leucine spread out through the day in order to get this muscle signal. And the leucine composition does vary in various types of proteins. This signaling requires around three grams per feeding as a sort of a dose of dietary leucine. And uh, you, if you're taking notes, you should write down, you need about 
8 to 10 grams of good quality leucine per day uh, spread out through the day. This requirement for leucine as a signal is remarkably consistent between individuals because it's, it's more based on these amino acids going out through the bloodstream and reaching tissues. It's not based on weight. It's based more on blood volume. So the protein requirement for a small woman, for example, or a small man is approximately the same or very similar to the protein requirement for a large person in order to maintain this leucine signal. So uh, you want to be sure to get enough leucine in whichever protein sources you use. The, uh, again, this is from Lehman and Patton Jones. They talk about 20, 25, 30 grams of quality protein per meal spread out through the day. That's roughly 90 to 120 grams of quality protein. And then my next rendition of these slides, I'll put in that total. But keep in mind, 90, 100 grams, 120 grams seems to be a good solid amount. And this shows the, uh, the amount of protein necessary to get 100 grams per. This shows the amount of leucine per 100 grams of protein. And it shows that with egg whites and whey protein, you can get that uh, leucine signaling. You have to probably eat a little bit more soy, wheat, and other vegetable proteins. You're going to need more. So the quality of the protein uh, is as important as you know. So do meal replacements work? Well, in, in a short answer to that, well, is, well, yes, obviously. And in fact, in going through the references, and there are, I think I have 40 or 41 references that you will get with this slide set. I really couldn't find any articles that said that meal replacements didn't work uh, for their intended purpose. The, recall Wadden in that look-ahead study. That was one of the first ones to really use uh, widespread use with a big study on uh, diabetes control and weight loss. And since then, we have multiple uh, supporting studies, and I'm going to talk about uh, several of them now. Uh, this is a study from Hainsfield uh, from 2003. You'll see this a lot, this particular study. This is one that's referenced uh, quite often uh, as a um, kind of a landmark study. And the reason that this is used is because it's one of the first studies that took a look at uh, uh, sort of a meta-analysis of other studies. So there were six studies included in this meta-analysis. And what they found was that at the three- and 12-month marks, that roughly twice as many uh, people who use meal replacements in a seemingly isocaloric diet, twice as many people were able to achieve a 5% weight loss, uh, more so than the, than the control group. So this is uh, one of the earlier studies that showed full results. Um, I wanted to try and pull in something from uh, Europe to see what was available there. This is from Cruciate. Uh, published in the uh, European Journal of Obesity. And this is not a big study, but it's kind of interesting because it's based in primary care. And uh, what they did was they, they had patients that were involved in a partial meal replacement program, and then they looked at completers at 36 months. And they, this is not an intention-to-treat analysis. This is a completer analysis. They said, if people are adherent, how well do they do? And they identified 70 patients. They had all completed 36 months in primary care clinics. They had all used partial meal replacement strategy once, two per day with reduced calorie uh, typical meals uh, as a comparison. And what they found was that the, in this partial meal replacement strategy, uh, people did better. Uh, they used this strategy until they'd lost two-thirds of their weight loss goal, and then they transitioned to maintenance with typical foods. And this is, I think, pretty common in clinical practice. People want to use a 
structured approach, and eventually a lot of people like to get back to a whole food type of approach, and that's basically what this looked at. Uh, uh, and they transitioned them out uh, once they lost two-thirds of their, of their weight. And here's what they found. The uh, lower bars show that they lost both weight and fat. It showed the maximum weight loss out at about six months and then showed at 12 months, 24 months, and 36 months a gradual regain, which uh, this type of slide is very, very common in, in weight loss. Uh, but they lost oh, about 12 or 13% of their total weight and lost about 12 to 13% of their fat mass. The top bar shows that not only did they lose fat mass and weight, but they also became leaner. So in this structured meal replacement, partial meal replacement-based program, uh, followed by typical food, that they lost weight, they lost body fat, and they became leaner. And uh, that's important because programs that don't have adequate structure, adequate protein, there tends to be a loss of uh, lean mass as well. Um, this is a very, very interesting study that uh, hopefully many people have seen. This is the direct study. This was from Lancet in 2018, and this looked at uh, approximately 300 individuals in uh, the U.K. in 49 primary care centers. And they took uh, all of these patients had type 2 diabetes, and they put them in two groups. The one group was uh, usual care. Uh, the intervention group, they get this, and this is going to probably scare some of the physicians on the, on the call here. They stopped every anti-diabetic and anti-hypertensive medication, which makes some people roll their eyes, but they stopped them. They went on a VLCD meal replacement strategy for three to five months of just a little over 800 calories, which is a typical VLCD range. And then after that three to five month period, they reintroduced food over a period of two to eight weeks. And then they did continue with structured behavioral support to uh, maintain long-term maintenance. And what they looked for was those patients who were able to lose 15 kilos, 33 pounds, and to have remission of diabetes at uh, 12 months. And what they found in their outcomes was that at 12 months, approximately 50% had achieved diabetes remission. And from this, they concluded appropriately that uh, remission of type 2 diabetes is an achievable target in primary care practice. I think this is pretty important because it, um, it shows the efficacy of uh, VLCD. It shows the value of meal replacements. It shows the uh, ability in a primary care setting to do an intervention. And it shows that you can maintain a, a real and achievable major impact on diabetes, which is um, key. So this is, this is, I think, an awesome study. And then... The last one in this section is uh, this review from Lee and Chi that basically they looked at 45 clinical studies. They, they threw out a wide net and they said, do meal replacements work? And what they found basically, yes, the use of meal replacements as part of a low-calorie diet plan supports overall lifestyle change to maximize weight loss. They also found uh, improved efficacy in those programs that had cognitive and behavioral and psychological support that helped improve motivation adherence, engagement, ultimately uh, improve success. Let's segue a little bit here into use in bariatric surgery. Uh, bariatric surgery is, is an interesting area to look at meal replacement because 
Uh, in many ways, some of the folks looking at bariatric and metabolic surgery are kind of held captive by the insurance companies. Many of them are required to have a medically supervised weight loss preoperative period of three to six months. Uh, the uh, surgeons typically like some type of weight loss preoperatively to help shrink the liver, and meal replacements are commonly used in that application. Uh, postoperatively, a structured a program uh, to help consolidate motivation, continue weight loss, and to see uh, improvement is, is useful. And then as part of a long-term strategy, after that 90 days, after that one year, after that two years, uh, having uh, food choices is really important. Bariatric surgery patients are limited to the size of the meal by the size of their pouch, and it can be very difficult to get adequate protein uh, unless they use nutritional supplements and high-protein meal replacements are very commonly used in this setting. Also, increasingly, you find that medical management, including dietary strategies using meal replacements, are more and more used in a regain strategy, oftentimes along with medications uh, to help with weight as well. In the regain uh, situation with patients, it's relatively seldom that a repeat operation is really the answer. They need uh, more structure more engagement and uh, support towards their, their goals. I've got two articles here to talk about the use of bariatric surgery. One is a systematic review that looked across a number of, of studies showed that VLCDs using knee replacements resulted in significant weight loss and liver volume reduction preoperatively. Uh, liver volume and in intradominal fat is a big deal in the surgical world. It's a lot easier to drive around inside the abdomen. Uh, if there's a loss of liver volume, liver fat, and intra-abdominal fat. The study did not show any perioperative changes, but uh, uh, one study in this review did show that there were fewer preoperative or postoperative complications. But the big thing is it's in surgical approach and uh, the ability to actually do the procedure. And then the second study uh, showing that there's a significant correlation between weight loss attained preoperatively and sustained weight loss at three to four years. I think this speaks to uh, not only the use of meal replacements and preoperative weight loss, but also the value of the engagement and helping patients stay engaged, stay motivated to have good pre-surgery weight loss and to stay engaged postoperatively. So there is a benefit in uh, those patients who lose weight who have a structured program in their ability to continue to have success post-operative. Uh, meal replacements are also used in elective surgery. Uh, there was a systematic review here published, Obesity Surgery 2016, showing that meal replacements are feasible, have minimal side effects, and facilitate weight loss and liver shrinkage in patients awaiting elective surgery. And any elective intra-abdominal surgery, I think uh, liver shrinkage and decreased intra-abdominal fat is, uh, is uh, valuable. Also, the, uh, a lot of the surgeons, for example, orthopedic surgeons, they're being paid on the basis of their outcomes, and the outcomes in heavier patients is worse than the outcome in light patients. So many, many orthopedic programs now are requiring pre-surgical weight loss as uh, part of their uh, preoperative workup. And then uh, this is an interesting study because it, it shows uh, the use of meal replacements in uh, pregnant women. And this study from Phelan out of the uh, American Journal of 
clinical nutrition, they looked at 257 women, and they found that prenatal behavioral intervention with partial meal replacement significantly reduced gestational weight gain in Hispanic and non-Hispanic women with overweight or obesity. This is the um, only study that I found. I didn't go looking specifically for meal replacements in pregnancy and do a deep dive, but, um, you know, this is an area that increasingly, as we see the obesity epidemic and the diabetes epidemic, this ability to control weight and help manage weight and help manage gestational diabetes is increasingly important. And I think this is a, a really uh, important point that this uh, is an area I think we're going to see more use of, of interventions, including partial and perhaps total meal replacement strategies. So we know that they work. We've seen what they are. But why do they work? Well, they support our core nutrition and lifestyle modification goals, right? How do they do that? Uh, I, I didn't reference this because these are all touched on in a lot of the references that you have. I think if you want to go to, to one set of articles, maybe look at the stuff that Tom Wadden has done. But there are multiple reasons that meal replacements work. If they're portion controlled, so people don't have to make decisions about the amount. They're calorie controlled, so that we know that we're getting the right caloric control. They're macronutrient controlled, and we can pick different types of macronutrient compositions. They're palatable. Um, companies that manufacture these products have a vested interest in having them taste good. Uh, they provide additional structure to the eating plan and help, again, uh, reduce decision fatigue and simplify decisions. They can improve nutrition, and I put versus perfect nutrition. None of us live in a perfect world and eat perfectly, and uh, there is one study in your references that specifically calls out that Adding meal replacements actually improved the overall nutritional baseline compared to the typical grazing uh, group of controls in that particular study. But improved nutrition over what people otherwise are eating is um, very common. Stimulus narrowing, uh, uh, fewer options, and stimulus control, control over the type of options. And then helping limit choice but, but having adequate choice within meal replacements, seeing uh, seeing weight loss, seeing progress towards goals can improve overall uh, motivation. So concerning the, the stimulus control aspect of this, this I, I think is an interesting study. And this is the question mark is there because it's a potential mechanism for stimulus control. Why do meal replacements work and what happens in the brain? This study looks at the effects of three weeks of total meal replacement versus a typical uh, grocery food type based diet on human brain functional magnetic resonance imaging in response to food cue uh, testing and look at the functional connectivity of people with obesity. Long title, uh, pretty good study. 32 patients with obesity, put them into two groups. They were isocaloric, meaning one group was 1,100 uh, or so calories with uh, meal replacements, total meal replacements. The other one was uh, supposedly 1,100 calories with grocery foods. They left in there for three weeks. And then they did an MRI scan on their heads. And they said, what can we see? So what they looked at were the, they looked at the uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging food cue reactivity. They showed them pictures of food and saw which areas of the brain lit up. They did a cravings inventory uh, and uh, looked at how their food cravings were. And then they followed their weight as well. And what they found was really interesting, that with the total meal replacement group, 
they showed increased executive control, uh, activation in those cortical front portions of the brain that actually uh, are part of the decision-making, the executive control function of the brain. And they also found that with the activation of that, you know, got to make a decision type of mechanism, that the reward center was downregulated. And so that was, I think, showing basically if you make a decision that you can blunt some of those reward and um, pleasure centers. They will actually listen to the cortical side of the brain. Those folks that used the meal replacements had greater weight loss, roughly twice as much. And when they did a food craving inventory, they actually had reduced cravings. So it wasn't like they were all hanging on for dear life and craved foods and came out at the end of the structured program craving more. They came out at the end with a greater sense of control and felt less driven by their food cravings. I think that's pretty remarkable and is a powerful tool to tell patients that uh, they're not going to be hanging on to their cravings the entire time and and explode into some type of of uh, have to give in to cravings. People fear that a lot in, in, when they are being asked to be on a reduced calorie uh, dietary culture. So uh, heading into the, the last section here, I'd like to give you three examples of how meal replacements can be used in a clinical diet prescription. These are from my practice. Uh, this is one way to do it. It's not the only way. Uh, example number one of meal replacement use, this is an 800-calorie kilocalorie uh, VLCD, and this shows a, a breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack type of approach with the breakfast being composed of uh, meal replacement strategy, lunch, the same. Dinner is a on-your-own whole food with some guidance, and the snack is a meal replacement. This particular one, uh, for example, shake in half of a bar, you can see the, the for breakfast, you can see the kilocalories, roughly 150, uh, structured around shake primarily with the protein to try to reach that 20, 25, 30 grams of protein so that we get that leucine uh, signal at that point in time. And you can see the fat and carb numbers that are drawn straight off of the package label. Lunch with, uh, could be a soup, a pudding, a smoothie, a fruit drink. And I put fruit with a little star because it's not really fruit. It's uh, fruit flavored, but it's uh, got good quality protein. You can see the numbers there. Dinner, uh, two to three to four ounces of fish. Chicken, beef, or pork, a cup of non-starchy vegetable, or two cups of salad, and a tablespoon of olive oil, trying to get that minimum amount of oil to see if we can maintain good gallbladder emptying. Um, it, I don't have any slide here, but the olive oil use or use of a minimum amount, 20 to 30 grams of, of fat and oil in the diet, minimum per day, is more effective than the best medication we have to prevent gallstones. It's better than uracidioxycholic acid. Uh, uh, by a uh, factor of five to six times. And then you can see the last one there, the snack, shake and a half of a bar, similar composition to the breakfast with uh, that same amount of protein. So we've got our 80 to 100 grams of protein. We're on the low end at that protein mark, but, hey, we're at a VLCD. Um, these are pretty good numbers. And you can see that the fat's adequate and the grams are maintained in a low, low level. The next example is a 1,200 calorie per day LCD. Uh, this one you can see has uh, five plus one. It has primarily meal replacements and one meal of grocery food. You can see how the calories are structured. Uh, breakfast again, trying to get at minimum 20, 25 grams, try to get some leucine in there. 
uh, the uh, lunch, similar numbers, the dinner is the larger number where people like to have perhaps a bigger family meal. And you can see how we can easily reach that goal of 120 grams per day of protein. That's a, a nice number to work for. The fat grams are still relatively low, but high enough for gallbladder emptying. And the carbs are, are 80 in this example. Um, underneath that upper limit of, say, 100 to 120 grams that we're still trying to be in a reduced carbohydrate environment. <clears throat> and then the last example is a meal replacement strategy, or it's a partial replacement strategy, which has a breakfast, lunch, and dinner of, of uh, typical food or grocery food, and then uh, snacks composed of meal replacements. And it shows, again, the calories come in at 1,200, in your protein column, you're still trying to hit that uh, distribu distribution of uh, adequate protein, good leucine through the day, hit that 120 gram uh, marker, clearly above that 90 to 100 grams that we're trying to stay at. Uh, fat grams are still uh, relatively low, so we're getting calorie control here. And again, we're not really afraid of fat, but we, if we add too much fat into the diet, we start to lose control of the calories. So 40 grams is a good number. And then here, 80 grams of carbohydrate. And you'll notice uh, in the dinner that uh, 25 grams, that includes the fiber. And uh, fiber is anywhere from 30 to 50% of the composition in the vegetables. So the net carbs will be lower. And that's something you want to think about as well. I, in all of my examples, I use total carbs because it's easier for patients to, to think of. So that puts us uh, to the summary. Uh, that the use of meal replacements and weight and metabolic management has a long successful pedigree. The current literature supports the value of meal replacements in a wide range of settings, including weight control, weight management, diabetes, metabolic syndrome control, and is supportive of bariatric metabolic surgery. And that we have a lot of different options. Many different options are present in incorporating meal replacements with other elements of the lifestyle modification program, which to get the maximum bang for the buck, incorporates behavior change, activity, medication management, potential surgery or other interventions, and includes consideration of that care continuum. And I'd like to just say in memoriam to Michelle Cohen, uh, who was a long-term uh, at Robard and uh, is not with us anymore. So with that, I'd like to say thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Lindquist, and uh, thank you for your mention of uh, Michelle Cohen, too. We miss her greatly as well. Uh, I do have a few questions for you, if that's okay. Please. Um, first question I have is, is, do you check resting uh, metabolic rate? And if so, do you consider metabolic rate when setting the target macronutrient intake? That's a very good question. Um, I do. I'm in a of medical weight management comprehensive program, and I have access to doing uh, an RMR uh, with uh, the indirect calorimetry, calorimetry, the little handheld device. Uh, I also uh, use a body compos composition scale that does a lot of the uh, calculation for me. So I plug in the height and weight. It calculates the body composition and also then, based on the activity level, gives me a daily metabolic rate. Um, it's surprisingly, it's, I shouldn't say surprisingly, it's, it's pleasantly similar enough to all the testing that I've done that I seldom do the actual handheld testing. So I have 
a daily metabolic rate on uh, as a baseline on all my patients and can actually follow it over time. And uh, the second part of that question was, do I use that in cal- calculating the uh, daily uh, calorie need? And the answer to that is, is yes, with a couple caveats. Um, it's easy enough to take the daily metabolic rate, which in, let's say, in a, a medium-sized woman who um, walks during the day but is not at, uh, exercising every day, perhaps has a daily metabolic rate of 2,600, I can cut that in half and take her down to 1,300 or even 12. In a large man who's, who's got a, a daily metabolic rate of 3,600, you can cut that in half and go to 1,800. Uh, that's one. That's one way to do it. There's another way to do it, which uh, takes a look at, at the fact of well, how many nutrients do you really need? Well, you, you have to have protein or you die. And I love that that 100, 120 grams from layman's work. So I use that as a floor for how many grams of protein I want. And then you have to have fatty acids or you die. And so you know you can use that roughly 20 or 30 grams as sort of a floor. And then you know, carbohydrates, there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. So you can have them as low as the patient can comfortably go. So um, although I may, I may use a daily metabolic rate calculation and pick 1,500 grams, uh, take 3,000 calorie daily metabolic rate, cut it in half and come up with a number of 1,500, I don't have to be that high. I can go lower. And so we ask the patient, what do you want to do? I think for uh, most women, 1,000 to 1,300 calories per day is going to work well. And for most men, 15 to 1,700 per day is going to work well. Uh, I hope that answered the question and didn't leave everybody confused. Um, so, I'll end there. Great. So, just generally, in your opinion, how long, how long can someone be on a diet that is strictly meal replacements? So, that's, that's a good question. When... When we built our program, we reviewed the VLCD literature. I've got a stack of about 35 articles or so on VLCDs. And the, the idea with the VLCD that's important to keep in mind is that it's not a long-term dietary strategy. It is an intervention. And as an intervention, then, you want to use it as long as you need to. Now, what's going to uh, – how long could you continue it? There's really no limit to how long you could use it. Uh, we built ours as a, around a basically a 12-week sort of package to where our monitoring, our intervention, our, our return visit structure, our lab work is built around 12 weeks. And um, a number of our patients, they get to that 12 weeks and they say, you know, this is great. I want to go ahead and transition. Other patients get to two weeks. They say, you know what? I really don't like this. They want to stop. Other patients get to that 12-week mark and they say, you know, I don't. I like this. I like not having to think about food. Their cravings are dropped. Their carb cravings are dropped. Their hunger is well-controlled and they like to, con- like to continue. In that direct study program, you can see that they used uh, their program for three to five months, and I think that's pretty typical for what, in a practical setting, is often done. Terrific. And, and um, what do you think the future is uh, for meal replacements? I think, I think that meal replacements will continue to evolve they will continue to uh, nutritionally be structured towards dietary preferences. I think, I think we'll see more and more keto-based, for example, where the fat content comes in, for example, at 60%. Uh, I think we'll see 
uh, more and more developed in even a higher carb approach, but where it's primarily starch and fiber and low glycemic index uh, products that, that people on that low end, uh, people who like the, the prebiotic thinking around the uh, fiber and the, uh, uh, the non-digestible starch, things like that, I think we'll see more like that. So I think we'll see more diversification of approaches. Um, I think we'll also see more uh, engagement with flavor and taste. And, uh, you know, the, the, the market historically was, you think about meal replacements, you think bars and shakes. That's great. Soups came along. That's great. Entrees came along. A little harder to keep carbs under control, but they could work pretty well. So I think we're going to see more, more variety in the market as, as well. Thank you, Dr. Lindquist, and thank you to our audience for joining us for today's Robard Corporation podcast, Meal Replacement Strategies in a Comprehensive Weight Management Program. As a reminder, you can subscribe to all of Robard's podcasts for free by searching the phrase Robard Corporation on Apple's iTunes, Google Play Music, and by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com. And if you'd like more information about treating obesity in your office or clinic, visit robard.com. Thank you.